All right, it's back. Another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. And if you want to check out my company, we uh, are a retailer in the musky world and we specialize in custom colored stuff. Although if you want stock stuff, we have that too. You know, if you're looking for whatever, a black and nickel cowgirl or junior cowgirl or whatever, we have that. You want a black and orange bulldog, we have that too. Anyways, you can find that at TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And my co-host today is Brad Hoppy with Musky Mayhem Tackle. His wife, Carrie, may join in eventually, but she's not here right now for this intro. And if you want to check out Musky Mayhem Tackle and all they have to offer, visit MuskyMayhemTackle.com. Brad, why don't you talk a little bit about your company? Yeah, it's pretty easy. You know, we're the originators of the big bladed flash of bait and uh, super proud of that and appreciate all the loyalty of our customers throughout the whole industry. But uh, yeah, exciting things. We have a new bait that we released in August and we're planning on launching another one here shortly. It's kind of a weird year without the shows, Jeff. So I don't know, you know, how do we launch this new product? That's something that we've been considering. But uh, anyhow, it's uh, it's been a fun ride and we appreciate being on here as a co-host. Oh, we certainly appreciate you being here. So anyways, Brad, I was uh, flipping through a little bit of Facebook here before we started, and I saw something about a new hummingbird unit. So hopefully you guys sell a ton of new bucktails because I can't imagine this thing's going to be cheap. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of the details that we that we were just recently discussing? Yeah, you know, I really don't have a ton of knowledge about it yet, but it's the new Apex, and that screen looks like it's available in a 13, a 16, and a 19-inch screen platform. And the way it reads, it looks like there's probably more pixels that uh, are involved into that screen so that maybe it's a little refined detail on that screen. That's what I know at this point. I I think it's really interesting. We'll see where this goes. And hopefully we gain some more knowledge quickly. Hopefully. You know, new toys for for anglers, I guess. More more different stuff as if we don't have enough other stuff to worry about. Now we got to worry about more and bigger screens. Well, it's amazing, Jeff. You know, I mean, the technology just changes so rapidly. And, uh, man, you, you kind of got to strap in and, and just kind of go along with the ride, right? So, yeah, things are just changing quickly. And um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what this is all about. No doubt. So well, one thing we forgot to talk about was our guest today is going to be Jordan Weeks from the Wisconsin DNR. We had Jordan on... I don't know. I'm guessing 65 or more episodes ago. It was a while back. We're going to talk a little bit about a hot water study, and then we're going to talk a lot about stocking, and we'll probably talk about electronics because, well, that's what we do around here. Right, Brad? I mean, it's pretty much a weekly thing. Yeah, it definitely has become a mainstay in the uh, topics or conversation throughout their whole history of our uh, podcast, but you know, and for good reason, like I just said, I mean, it just keeps moving rapidly, you know, and, and every year it seems like there's something new for us to play with. So if he has something to bring to the table about other electronics, let's, let's hear it. Well, I know he uses the panoptics quite a bit, so maybe we'll get a little bit on that. I've only kind of reached out to him and said, Hey, are you available to do a podcast? Of course he said yes. And we didn't really go over our topic list yet. So we'll do that shortly before we record with him. But um, other topics, I guess I would say, is if you haven't done it yet, check out our new podcast. It's a little solo project I'm doing with mostly manufacturers. We're talking baits and, and whatnot on the Team Rhino Outdoors Musky Fishing Podcast. If you're listening to this one on Wednesday when it comes out, two days prior, I released one on that one. And we talked to Carrie about cowgirls and 
the start of Muskie Mayhem tackle. So if you want to know about that story, which I thought was really cool, talks to, you know kind of about what they're what they went through to get to where they are now. And the cool story that Kerry talked about on that podcast was having a sling baits at Thorn Brothers, and if they sold a hundred baits over the course of a show weekend, Thorn Brothers was willing to put them in the shop. So Brad and Kerry had to hustle and and uh, bust bust it out and try to sell as many cowgirls as they could that weekend, and they got the job done and and got in. Uh, at, you know, at Thorn Brothers. So that was a cool story. And if you want more of that, check out the Team Rhino Outdoors Muskie Fishing Podcast. Same place as you find this one, wherever you're listening right now, I'm sure you can find it again. We just got approved on iHeartRadio. So we're there now. Otherwise, we're in Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes. Um, I think there's a couple other ones, but most anywhere you find a podcast. So Brad, did you get to listen to Carrie on it? I mean, Carrie did a good job. I told you before we recorded a couple days ago that you could tell the passion that she still had for the bait industry. And I thought that was pretty awesome. No, I have not heard it yet. I, I did see that you had advertised it this morning because they come out on Monday mornings. I, I haven't actually listened to it yet, but I will. Maybe tomorrow. That'll be on the schedule for tomorrow. It sounds good. I guess, you know, you got important things to do. Are you still fishing yet or not? Um, I, I have not fished the last week only because me, uh, Carrie was out of town and I had to take care of Mika. So I will probably sneak back out in the next day or two. Say, so, yeah, I think I didn't look too far ahead, but somebody, one of my buddies texted me and said, Hey, wet weather looks good for the weekend. We should be getting out fishing. So I'm assuming, I think I saw something about a warm up. My phone popped up an alert today. It said it's cold today and tomorrow, but then we're going to see a warm up. So I'm a, I thought I saw something maybe like the 50s or something like that. So hopefully that's true. Yeah, it isn't quite that warm here, but uh, we've got snow on the ground, actually, Jeff. You probably don't have that. Um, um, wrong. We got some today. I wasn't impressed at all. <laughs> yeah, we got some today. We got some yesterday. We got some the two days before that. So. You know, it, it's kind of sticking. It's melting when the sun pops out, that's for sure. But um, we're supposed to get up to like 44. So the day that this this podcast comes out, it's supposed to be 44. We'll see what happens. The last couple of days, they've been a little bit off, and it's been colder than what they said it was going to be. Yeah, well, you know, I'm surprised at this point we're still out fishing, so that's that's a good thing. And speaking of fishing, I think we should go and talk to Jordan Weeks about uh, fishing, musky fishing in particular, because that's kind of what we do. Sounds like a plan. All right. Our guest on this podcast this week is Jordan Weeks from the Wisconsin DNR. If you want a full in-depth description of Jordan, his background, his height, his weight, and his driver's license number, go visit episode number 17. But for this episode, Jordan, we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule again and coming on and talking to us but why don't you give the listeners the new listeners who haven't listened to episode 17 a brief rundown of what your duties are with the wisconsin dnr well thanks jeff and brad i really appreciate you guys having me on uh yeah so basically i work uh for the wisconsin department of natural resources i've been doing it um full-time since 2005 uh worked for about five years before that with the department as well but my main job is to work on the Mississippi River. However, I am the statewide muskie team leader. And um, for, well, I guess the last 14 years, I've been writing as research editor for Muskie Hunter Magazine. Well, I guess that was pretty brief, huh? Yeah, you asked me to be brief, so I did. Well, mission accomplished. <laughs> All right. Now we, got, now we have more time to get to the meat, right, Jordan? Meat. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we just got to quit early tonight. I thought that's how that went. <laughs> 
Jeff's looking for the easy out for editing. Well, you know, sometimes sometimes I'm doing that. Well, this week's tough, Brad. I uh, I actually got out my tool belt on five days this week. That's pretty brutal. I don't. I haven't done five days of electrical work in a little while. I mean, lately it's been. Uh, I don't know. It's probably been two or three more in the shop stuff. So, but this week we're, we're, we're pretty busy. So I even worked yesterday today for anybody who cares today is Monday. I worked on a Sunday wiring stuff. So it's going to be six straight days with my tool belt on. I haven't done that since September. That's good for you. It keeps you going. I guess. So maybe help me lose a couple pounds. Keep those calluses <laughs> on your fingers, right? Right. All right. So Jordan, one of the hot topics we were, we actually meant to have you on earlier this summer, but you you made the rounds on every single podcast talking about hot water, which is you know obviously good. But during that, you had talked about a study going on in the South, I believe it was, on hot water. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because tonight's topics are going to be that, and basically everybody else wants to know about stocking. So we'll talk about pretty much these couple of things, and maybe we'll throw in some stuff on electronics because we we do that too. But why don't you talk a little bit about that hot water study? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, my, one of my close friends is one of the lead investigators on this work and it's actually a, a big group of folks that are doing this work. So there's no one person that gets all the credit for doing all this good work, but it's, it's funded mostly by the Hugh Becker foundation, Muskie's Inc, uh, West Virginia DNR, um, the Virginia department of, uh, wildlife resources, and then a foundation for, uh, Eric Workman foundation, and then chapter 76 of Muskie's Inc. And, the main investigators are from West Virginia University, Kyle Hartman, Peter Jenkins, and Taylor Booth. West Virginia DNR, Jeff Hansberger, Coastal Carolina University, Corey Bauerlein, and my friend Derek Crane. Uh, Virginia Department of Wildlife, uh, Scott Smith, George Palmer, Tyler Young, and from Maryland DNR, Dan Getz. And they have like three main components to this study. The first one is they have a James River study where they tagged 45 fish. Uh, with radio transmitters in the James River, um, and they've located 39 of 40 of 45 fish. Uh, they had a few escapees that got away because it's an open river system. They don't have any idea how far they they traveled downstream or if they were caught and kept or or what. But they have data on 39 fish. They found that 15 of the 39 moved downstream through uh, either a single dam or multiple dams, which is pretty common. And then they have 12 angler reported fish from June to September. Five of those fish were caught before the water got to 80 degrees. Four of those fish were caught in July when the water was 80 degrees. Three fish caught in August when the water was 80 degrees or better. And then in September, no fish were caught. Seven fish were caught on musky gear, three on live bait, and two on bass gear. And... 11 of the 39 fish that they had with transmitters or that they located with transmitters uh, died. Um, five of them died prior to, to tracking. Um, two of those were anglered, but the other three, they couldn't determine the cause of death. So this was in July before they started tracking the fish. Six fish died during the season. Three were retrieved. Two of those died from angling and one died from natural causes. Um, and of the three that were not recovered, uh, only one was angled. The cause of death was not determined for five individuals. And of the six fish where cause of death was determined, three, three died of natural causes and three died after angling. So 
overall is a big summary after giving you all those numbers. And I apologize for making your head explode. Three of 26 control fish. These were fish that were not captured. They're called controls or 11% died. And three of eight angled fish died. However, few fish were caught during the hot water period. Basically what, what Derek and the guys were telling me is that these, they had these fish located and the water was really hot and they wouldn't eat, which is one of the premises that I talked about a lot on those other podcasts back in the year, uh, earlier in the year. Um, when these fish get stressed, the first thing they do is stop feeding. And that's what they found in this study because they were actually, you know, going out with radios, finding these fish, trying to catch them. Well, they couldn't catch them, even though they knew oftentimes they could see them. And they'd fish, they'd stay on these fish and try to catch them and try, try to catch them. And they just couldn't. I'll breathe there the for question? a second. That's fine, Jordan. I, I'm curious not to interrupt what you're going after there. So they kind of pressured these fish once they could not get them to eat, you know, by following them. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, <laughs> where does it go from there? I mean, you're trying to catch this fish, trying to catch this fish. That's kind of interesting to see, you know, what, what took place throughout that time frame and, and how long that time frame was. Yeah. And, and the next part I'm going to tell you is not something that they, you know, that's, that's been published. So this is just correspondence to my friend, Derek. What, what they said is these fish, a lot of them would go to certain Creek mouths and river mouths where the water was a little bit cooler and they would sit in the confluence. And it's not like they, it's not like the researchers were chasing these fish or, or making them swim. Those fish wouldn't move and they wouldn't eat. They just sit there where they were comfortable with a little bit cooler water. So they changed their behavior and they were stressed based on the hot water is what we, we surmise and they weren't feeding. So they were really hard to catch. I mean, typically I would say in the midsummer period when the water temperatures are hotter, muskie fishing can be, you know, more difficult, I would say. So I guess that's not, that's not too surprising, is it? Not to me. I mean, that was my premise all along is, you know, these stressed fish are not going to feed. So Jordan, uh, how deep, what are we talking about with the James river? I don't, I don't know anything about it. I know there's some muskies being caught out there. I know blah, 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 but you know, what kind of water depth are we talking about in the James river? And you know, what's the normal water temps? I mean, do you have any of that? Well, I, I don't have, you know, experience being out there from, but from conversation I've had, you know, the water temperatures, you know, get up to 86 and or higher. And in rivers, they're pretty uniformly, you know, the temperature's uniform because the water is always mixing. So the depth that these fish were using, the ones that he talked about in particular to me, definitely not super deep. Um, I'm going to say less than 20 feet, you know, they were in these little Creek mouths and generally there's a, you know, a Delta where the Creek comes in and there's a, maybe a hole below that. And that's where the fish were sitting. So, um, I don't know for sure how deep they were, but it wasn't very deep. Um, even though they do have access in this system to some pretty deep water. Interesting. I, I think that, I mean, trying to relate it to the Midwest, whether it be Wisconsin or Minnesota or whatever, I'm just kind of curious to see what these fish were actually doing. Yeah. Let me get to that. There's a third part that, that I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So the second part is they have a pond study where they have this hatchery um, called the Palestine hatchery. I want to see, I want to say, and they put 13 fish from the wild into, into these ponds at this hatchery. And then they angled for those fish, uh, seven fish, seven of the 13 were caught 
uh, during the summertime. Three of seven died within two weeks of the angling event. Um, two of the six fish that were not caught died. Um, and three deaths occurred when water temperatures were approaching 86 degrees. No deaths were recorded when temps fell from 86 degrees. Um, the important thing to see here is the control fish, those fish, those, that was fish that weren't caught. They died anyway, because the water in these ponds got over 90 degrees. So, you know, you get to a point where there's an upper lethal temperature on these fish and they just can't survive no matter what happens. So the pond study was the first year. Wisconsin and a couple other states are also trying to piggyback on this study. Uh, I've asked for some money from the local muskie clubs to a total of about $6,000 to try to do our own uh, pond study that basically piggybacks using the same exact experimental design that they're using so that our, our data can be added to this study. We're still in the stage of that to find out if we can get enough funding to do it. Um, but it'll be a real valuable point, right? So if we do it here in Wisconsin, our, our water is unlikely to get to 90, but we're pretty likely to get to, you know, that mid eighties level. Out of that pond study. I mean, you think about that, how many fish were in that pond and how many, you know, couldn't exist. Is it an oxygen level? Uh, I, I, they didn't ever mention that oxygen was a problem. So there was 13 total fish in the pond. So it's not a lot of fish. So, you know, when we're, when we're trying to do scientific research, when you get to those small numbers like that, it's really hard to say a lot about it. And that's the reason we want to help too, because they're going to do this again in those same ponds next year. We want to do it with like 20 some fish. If Michigan does it with 20 fish, maybe Indiana does it with 20 fish. You know, we can get a lot more power to make some more uh, concrete decisions on when, what happens. So keep in mind with all of this, this is the first year of this study. So this is going to go at least another year. And so we should bolster the results and get have a little bit more firm uh, study results. For sure. You know, and you, you think about a river versus that pond, the river by far should be a lot cooler than those ponds would be, you know? So yeah. it's, it's intriguing to hear this. Yeah. And you know, these are, you know, this is down in Virginia, right? So it's, it's a lot warmer there than it is here. So it's another thing to kind of, it, it doesn't make it completely analogous to us, but it doesn't make it completely uh, a different planet either. So it's, we can still take some, some stuff out of it, what they find out and use it here. The third part of their study was actually in a reservoir. Um, and I'm not going to name it because I know it's not super huge. So there's a reservoir down there that they had 45 uh, tagged fish in and 10 of the 45 fish were caught by anglers. And this is, in, in my opinion, from an angling perspective, the most interesting part of this study from the first year, only one of 10, one of those 10 fish that were caught by anglers died. And this reservoir had water surface temperatures that were in the mid to high eighties for a long time during the summer. Uh, and the only, the fish that died was deeply hooked with a bondy. So it wasn't necessarily 100% just because of the water temperature. I'm sure, I'm sure it was a mitigating factor, but, it was, I mean, it, it got hooked in the gills of the body bait. So the reason it got hooked in the gills of the body bait was because these fish were residing in a really small uh, part of the reservoir, just above the thermocline in some mid to high 70 degree oxygenated water. So it was like 18 feet down or so. And those fish were all sitting right there with a whole bunch of gizzard chad. And once the anglers found out where they were, it was like, 
taking candy from a baby and they caught a ton of fish even when they were fishing for you know fish with tags they'd end up catching all these other fish that didn't have tags they these fish went to this area where they were more comfortable 10 of them were caught one of 10 died and these fish were going from mid 70 degree water up to mid 80 degree water unhooked you know data was taken and then they were released so it's not unlike you know maybe northern wisconsin in the summertime potentially so this is to me kind of most the most enlightening part of this yeah that's super intriguing now do they talk about a thermocline in the study well yeah these guys mentioned the thermocline they they measured water temperature and oxygen so below the thermocline there wasn't any oxygen in this reservoir so there won't be any fish down there sure it's also I'm, possible that, you know, the, this, these conditions can change from year to year and, and the fish could be stressed more one year where there's less oxygen um, or, or not stressed as much in, in a year where there is more oxygen. I'm intrigued, you know, when you say that the thermocline is like the definite, there's no fish below that thermocline. And, and how do you know that for sure? Well, and, and when I say there's no oxygen below the thermocline, and therefore there's no fish. Um, that's only be based on the fact that fish need oxygen to survive. So when I say that, it's not like they couldn't swim down there for a short period of time and eat something if there was something down there um, to eat and then come back into the oxygenated water. But basically, the things that muskies eat would not be there because there's not enough oxygen for them to survive. So therefore, if there's no oxygen below that thermocline in this particular body of water, there wouldn't therefore not be any muskies either. Now, this isn't true in every body of water. Like, I'm not telling you that, you know, lakes up by you, Brad, have a thermocline that they don't have oxygen below that because there's plenty that do. It varies by water body. Yeah, you know, it's a scary thing, Jordan. And that's why I asked the question because I worry that there are some of those fish that hang on that borderline, if you will, maybe even a little bit below it, and you think about that, you know, as an angler, you have to respect that and basically just avoid that in my, in my opinion, you know, I mean, that's my humble opinion, um, partly because, you know, that's when things start to happen and they go wrong. Sure. And, and if that's your experience, Brad, I'm not here to tell you that that's, that's not valid. That's not a valid reason. You know, I, I mean, I'd always say err on the side of the fish. What I'm telling you here is they caught 10 fish like that. Only one died. So in this example, 10% mortality is not a whole lot different than you're going to have any given day musky fishing. Musky fishing hooking mortality is anywhere from 5 to 10% every single day. Yeah, it's so intriguing to hear this, Jordan. I mean, I, and I'm not trying to call you out by any means. So No, don't I, I don't take it that way. I'm just trying to report what they found, you know. Right, right, right. And so I'm like pushing the envelope here in the sense that, you know, think about like trolling. Once the thermal client starts to develop, I basically back completely away from my open water trolling. Why? Because I think that you could potentially catch those fish and you're going to have a bad experience. So that's why I pull away from that, you know, with past experiences 20 years ago where we're running baits, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? We're calling fish up and it's not a good scenario. So like you just said, I mean, it's about the safety of the fish. 
Yeah, I mean, everybody has to make up that decision. And if you feel that way, Brad, there's nothing wrong with erring on the side of the fish, you know. It, that That's your decision. I, I'm not here to tell you to do it or not to do it. I'm just saying this is what they found in the, in their study. And, you know, I mean, if you're asking me what I would do, if I chose to fish that way, I would make sure that I reeled the fish in really slow. And I think what I'd be worried about more so than anything is barrel trauma, where they come up from a depth too fast and then their air bladder expands and they have trouble getting that air to, to go out of their body so that they can go back down to the deep. I'd be more worried about that than necessarily than the, the water temperature issue, especially in Minnesota. I don't, I mean, I know the surface temperature up there can get, can get up to 80, 82, 83, 84, you know, but my guess is if you took a temperature profile, it wouldn't be very far down and it would be darn cool. That is true, Jordan. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head. So, what if you do get one of those fish? Can you answer any of those questions to kind of help alleviate uh, any kind of issues? I mean, if you have that bloated fish, the air bladder is just swollen, like you said. What can you do to help that fish? Anything? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things you can do. The, the worst thing you can do is put a hole in that air bladder. A lot of people have talked about, they call that, what do they call that, fizzing? Something like that. Um, there's yep. been, yep. Uh, right. uh, there's been some articles, not scientific articles. There are other articles that, that talk about fizzing fish. That's the absolute worst thing you can do. It's that's an internal organ to the fish. And if you put a hole in it, it may or may not ever heal, or it may or may get affected and then kill the fish in a week or longer or shorter, who knows. But, uh, my advice would be to keep that fish upright, keep water going through its gills. You know, whether you have to use the trolling motor and hold it behind the head and go real slow through the water, um, that fish will be able to, to basically get that air bladder to deflate because that's what they do when they move up and down the water column. It's, it's not something that takes two seconds. It takes a little bit, but I would just hold that fish um, because it, it will just go belly up. And if you don't keep that water going over the gills, you may have a dead fish on your hands because it won't be able to regulate its, its um, air bladder quick enough to get back into the water and get upright. So that would be my advice. Yeah. You know, the neat thing that you just talked about there, Jordan too, is, you know, I see guys they're they're holding the fish in the water and they're pumping it forward and backward, forward and backward. It's more important to go forward. And you kind of talked about that. You touched on it. So I, I've seen that and literally it almost looks like they're burping and farting for a lack of a better way to explain it. To release That's exactly that what hair. they do, yep. So yep. I, it's it's super intriguing to go into this conversation with you. Yeah, and you know, you talked about people holding fish, and this is a this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. And so I'm going to jump on a soapbox real quick. And, and I know that it's cool to have the both side release shot. That's those are great pictures, and I love them. And I'm not telling people you can't do them, but what I will tell you is, the longer your hands are touching that fish, the more the stress continues to impact that fish. So when a fish is caught angling, it's the stress process begins. And the longer that stress process lasts, and that includes holding the fish by its tail so that it can right itself, the, the more damage that stress can do to the fish. So my advice to folks, especially new folks that are fishing is, you know, if you want that cool both side shot, get one real fast and then let the fish go. As long as the fish is upright in the water, let it go. Because they have thousands and thousands of little receptors along their body, including on their lateral line. That when you have your hand around that caudal peduncle of that fish, they feel that. 
and they've just got caught, big hook stuck in their face, then they got put in this net thing, and then they looked at one of our ugly bugs, and now they're back in their environment, but they can't go anywhere because we have our hand around their, their tail. So the best thing to do is just put those fish head first back in the water, give them a little bit push forward, and I almost guarantee everyone's going to just take off. Or whether they I mean, I do it super fast, but they're going to go by themselves when you're not holding them better than holding them. And definitely don't pull them backwards. Like you said, Brad, that, that doesn't help them at all. Right. I, I, I it's the other part to this. Um, what's your opinions? I mean, you're the expert. So what's your opinions of putting that fish in the bag, getting a quick measurement, literally taking a picture, two, three, whatever, um, getting it back in the water, you let that fish go like you're talking about, as long as it can hold itself upright. I mean, literally, I, I did a video. It's on our Musky Mayhem uh, Tackle uh, YouTube channel. I think it was 18, 20 seconds, something like that, where I removed the fish from the bag, boom, take the pictures, and I released that fish. What is, what's the stress factor there? I mean, now we're talking warm water, but I mean, even when it's like, say, 65, 75 degree water, what are the aspects that we need to learn about there? Well, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, it, you know, taking a measurement and taking a quick picture or two is going to necessarily add a detrimental amount of stress to that fish in that particular time. You know, if you do it for a minute, minute and a half, you know, I mean, then you start talking about maybe increasing it a bunch. You know, I, I don't have any scientific research that shows, you know, this. The only thing, the only person that did anything like this was uh, Sean Landsman. And he did, he held his fish out of the water for a minute and then released them. And he didn't have any of them die. So uh, I would say if you can hold your breath that long, you're probably good taking the measurement, getting your picture. I mean, we work pretty hard to catch these fish and every single one of them is beautiful. And if it's me, I, I mean, I measure and take a picture of every single one. People want to come after me for that. They can go ahead and do it. Cause I, I mean, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I've only killed knowingly one fish in my life and, you know, put 1500 in a boat. So it happens, but that little bit of extra time to, to make that memory or complete that memory, not necessarily a huge deal in my mind, but when you put them back in their environment, I think it does help to just let them go. So talk more about this Sean Landsman. I mean, I, I find it interesting because, you know, it, there's some people out there that are saying, you know, do not bring that fish out of the water. You know, I look at it and I, I think different things. If I get a 40 inch muskie, I'm not going to measure it. I'm going to pick it up, maybe take a quick shot. Maybe I won't even take a picture of it, you know? So, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's all about the enjoyment of the fishery too. You know, I mean, these guys work ultra hard to try to get a fish in their boat. And if that 40, 44, 46, whatever it might be, 48, I don't care. You know, if, if they want that picture of it, you're, you're basically saying that it's okay to do it. Well, you know, I mean, within reason, right? If you have reason to believe that the fish isn't doing well, maybe you decide that, right? I'm not here to tell you that I know exactly what's going to happen with every fish that everybody puts in the boat because I don't. I would never pretend to do that, but you know, there, there is something to be said for, you know, making the memory, right? So a 40 inch to you, maybe he doesn't get a picture, but maybe there's a guy who started fishing next year. That's his biggest fish and it's important to him. And I will never be the guy 
to advocate, you know, bashing another musky angler because they want a picture or they want to know how long their fish is. I just don't think that's healthy for our sport. I don't think it's, it's good for anybody. And there's too many times where I just wish people would mind their own business about that stuff. You know, no one's out here trying to kill fish on purpose. Um, I firmly believe that and, you know, do what's reasonable, do what you think is best at the time. And, you know, try to take it easy on our fellow musky anglers about it. I would agree with that, Jordan. I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot by any means, but you know, I, it's one of those deals. I mean, a trophy to me, what's the trophy to the next guy? And so it's important that they are able to enjoy this whole sport. And some of that means a 38 incher to a 46 incher. It is what it is. Right. And right. people need to be able to enjoy that part of it. Right. And, you know, I mean, we're doing a, in Wisconsin right now, I've, I've kind of been working with a lot of pit tag fish and we've been pit tagging a lot of fish. I, I recently looked at our database. We have over 20,000 pit tag muskies in Wisconsin. And what we're seeing with these is these fish get recycled on a very regular basis. So we talk about all this all the time, but generally what we're doing is probably okay. You know, cause we do have a lot of these experiences where fish get caught multiple times. We don't know what, how these fish were handled any of those times. All we know is they're caught again by other anglers. Yeah, that makes sense, Jordan. Um, another question that I have, do you feel that they get more fragile the older that they get? So the bigger they are, are they more likely or more fragile than, say, maybe a say a 48 to a 40-incher? Is the 48 more fragile than that 40-incher? Man, Brad, we're getting really, we're getting philosophical. I'm not sure I, I know how to answer that. You know, I, I like to try to stay in the scientific realm where I have some answers that are peer reviewed that, that folks have, have worked real hard to kind of get. I don't have any reason to believe that any particular fish is more fragile than another. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, you know, obviously how you treat the fish is probably more important than its size. You know, if, it, if you have a really big fish and they're hard to hold up and you drop them on the bottom of the boat floor, that's worse than, than not doing that. You know, I, I can't answer your question other than that. Yeah, that's fair enough, Jordan. I, I just, you know, my experience in the boat, it seems as though those bigger fish stress, stress quicker, if that makes sense. And sure. You know, I've had a few fish like literally where they're what I would call like a brain hook, you know, they, they've got a hook buried through the, the roof of their mouth and they're coming in, they're bleeding right away. Um, generally speaking, what I will do is I will, I will release that fish immediately. I don't want to even touch it because the last thing I want to do is kill a fish. But at the end of the day, um, it seems that bigger fish are more fragile. And I, that's why I asked the question. You know, it seems to me from my experience with it, with some big fish is that they seem to be more docile, but you know, like they don't thrash as hard as some of the smaller ones typically. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you have, you have a lot of experience with that. And I, I, you know, the best thing to do with a bleeding fish is put it back in the water. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that too, with dumping soda down their throats. Don't do that. That's, that's not a good thing for the fish. It doesn't help. The best thing for a bleeding fish is for it to be back in the water because their blood is designed to coagulate in fresh water. And so that's the quickest way for them to stop bleeding is to put them back in the water. Ah, great point. That's that's super valid. 
I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think where they come from, you put them back where they come from. Right. So, right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have all the answers obviously, but it, I mean, it's really intriguing to be able to talk to you about these things because you can bring the science level to it, you know? Yeah. And overall, I think, you know, musky anglers do a great job of taking care of the resource. I think sometimes we, we do too good a job where we have to berate people and it kind of turns them off from the sport. And I kind of said that before. I don't want to get preachy, which I kind of sound like I'm doing, but man, we just need to be nicer to each other. Hands down. I, I think it's super, super important. And I know I, I, it's my soapbox, whatever you want to say, but I mean, we can argue and argue and argue, but at the end of the day, we need to support one another because when we start bickering within the group, if you will, um, it only opens up a whole new can of worms where the antis can, can attack. So it's important that we work together. Yeah. It seems like Minnesota is the place that that's happened more often than not recently, but yeah, I agree with you. You know, like I said before, you know, I don't believe anybody's out there trying to kill fish. So let's just do the best we can, you know, learn what you can as quick as you can have the right tools look at the fish, recognize what they're, you know, what they're doing. If you think you got one that might not be doing so well, get it back in the water. Maybe throw go the picture that time, you know? Hands down. So I, I've had this one up my sleeve the whole time, Jordan. And, you know, it's really super cool to, to hear about this West Virginia uh, research and study. Have you looked at the ministries, um, meaning Canada, have you looked at any of their warm water studies? I want to say they were doing something this summer as well. Um, I haven't seen any preliminary results from any of those that, that work though, cause I'm not uh, personal friends with any of those researchers. So I guess not at this point, no, but I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'll look at it when it's uh, published. Well, there was a, a study that was done quite some time ago and I know Mike Lazarus, I believe was involved and it was out in the Eastern part, you know, the oh, St. Lawrence oh. area and so on. Yeah. And so that forth. was Sean, that was Sean Landsman stuff. Project Noble Beast. Yep. Okay. That's what I referenced and, before. And what year was that? Oh man. Oh, five. I, yeah, I'm just I, guessing. I knew it had been some time, but I wasn't a hundred percent. Yeah. Sean, Sean did some really awesome work. What he did is he looked at, um, like blood chemistry. It related to the catch and angling experience with muskies. And I want to say he had 30-ish fish that he caught, uh, put transmitters in. He didn't have any of them die. Um, he did find that certain blood chemicals got elevated from the angling experience. And let's see, what was the other cool part about that? I mean, everything about it was cool. But yeah, he also didn't catch any when water temperatures were over 80. So it, right up to it, like 79, but he didn't catch any in water temperatures over 80. Very interesting. Yeah, that was a really cool study. I wrote about that in Muffy Hunter, too. I, I missed that. What issue are you talking? I don't know. I've been writing since 06, man. I, I, they, all, they all go together. Read them all is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah his, you can also, uh, that, that study, I think, still has a website. If you Google Project Noble Beast, you'll be, he, has a, he had a really cool blog where he talked about it. So, if anybody wants to read up on that, I'm pretty sure it's still out there. Super interesting. Jeff, I didn't mean to like keep cutting in here, but <laughs> I, these are questions that I, I've actually wanted to ask for quite some time. So 
jump in here wherever you can. No, that's no problem. You guys just take over the show. It's no big deal at all. <laughs> we don't you have some wires to twist or something? <laughs> well, if I could do both things together, that'd be awesome. That would make this really handy. But no, you guys just keep going. It was all good. I'll just hang out over here. I'm uh, I'm just listening to the conversation. I I, I liked what I mean. I, I liked a lot of what Jordan had to say so far. It was uh, it was useful, and you know. I, I especially like the part where he was talking about how, you know, just letting the fish go by the side of the boat is best for the fish. It seems like that's something that I've kind of picked up in the last, I don't know, two, three years. I don't know if I heard it from him somewhere, read it somewhere, did whatever, but I just started doing that myself more. And it seemed like, you know, like he said, as long as they're upright, it's good to go. So that part was good. I think for new anglers looking to handle a fish, I mean, I think you guys covered a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, and I actually kind of do a modified like they call the st Clair release you know have you seen that where they like, throw them into the water uh yes i you have seen that seen yeah. that yep that one's interesting i'm not sure how i feel about it but it doesn't appear as if it kills a bunch of fish so you know i mean there's no science on it so i have no idea really but i kind of do a uh i sit kind of by the gunnel of the boat and i put my hand underneath the belly of the fish and i just slowly push it into the water assuming that the water is not you know a foot deep you can kind of get that fish going in the water and they just take right off so let's ask you this, Jordan, um, vertical versus horizontal. I mean, what, what does your gut tell you there? I'm, I'm not going to say that you have the science. Maybe you do. And if you no, do, I, share it. <laughs> I don't have any science on that. I'm not sure it's been worked on. I know they've been doing some work on smallmouth bass and holds on, on, on bass. You know, how we always lift bass. I guess they're finding out that's not so awesome for them. So based on that, I would guess the vertical hold on a muskie is, is not very good. However, you know, there is that caveat with a vertical hold is how the hell you get it out of the net if you don't grab it by the head. So, you know, we all grab them by the head and pull them out of the net and then we get them horizontal, right? So I guess my advice would be to minimize the time that you hold them vertically as, as much as possible. And, you know, you kind of support their entire body with, you know, both your hands. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. I, I just thought I'd throw it out there because, I mean, I... You, you see a lot of that, you know, where the vertical hold is a no-no. You're right. I mean, when you're, especially a big fish, I mean, think about pulling that out of the bag. How do you support it with two hands until you get it out of the bag? So, you right. Know, a, you kind of have to hoist it and drag it, right? Right. It's an awkward position. So, I mean, uh-huh. it's bound to happen. Again, do your best. Try to minimize the time they're vertical. Um, imagine, you know, picking up if you could do this, picking up one of your friends by their head, you know, they probably wouldn't die, but they probably won't like it. Yeah. I've, I've tried that numerous times and it doesn't work out so well. <laughs> You're big enough. You might be able to pick up some of these guys that, that I've seen. Whole fit, so. <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> I was just envisioning me trying to pick up Brad by the head. <laughs> <laughs> I want a Jeff, picture of that. <laughs> Hold him out of the water as long as you can. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. I mean, I I always say that too with with people. You know, hold your breath. And how long can you hold your breath? You know what I mean. Especially in the amount of excitement or whatever with a big fish. And honestly, I mean, really, these fish shouldn't be out of the water more than twenty twenty five seconds at most. It, that's what it really takes. You can take that measurement, take those pictures, and it's back in the water. You know what I mean? Yeah, in a practice angler, I agree with you 100%. You know, some folks that haven't caught a lot, 
you know, it's going to take them longer to unhook the fish. It's going to take them longer to get their stuff together. And I get that. Everybody will learn, you know, it's part of the game, you know, a minute at the most is what the science says. I mean, landsmen had them out on the water for a minute. None of them died. So that would be the absolute maximum in my opinion would be a minute, but I know you're right, Brad. And once you get good at it, you can do it in 20 seconds, 30 seconds at the most. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about, you know, once you get those hooks out, let that fish hang out in the bag. I mean, it's basically just the, the live well, if you will, you know, that net becomes the live well. From there, I mean, get the cameras prepared, get all that stuff ready, get the measuring board wet, get it set up so that you're ready. And, and it's, you know, all musky anglers, we're all thinking about the fish. I, I truly believe that. And that that's the beauty of this sport. Yeah, you can't say that stuff enough. You know, prepare yourself, get ready. Think about what you're about to do. And when you do it, get it done efficiently and quickly and, and back in the water. You're right. So I got a question to you, Jordan, too, with, uh, you know, the realm of netting fish. Say you got your hoop net set up. You're looking for these muskies. When you're doing that and you're tagging them and you're doing whatever you're doing, how are you handling those fish? I mean, you're, you're actually pulling them out of that hoop net. Boom, boom, boom. You're, you're taking those measurements. You're tagging them. You're doing whatever you're doing. Share a little bit about that. Sure. Um, it, that is a much different ball game than when you catch them hook and line. They have not expended any energy um, before you get a hold of them. So they are full of piss and vinegar when you get a hold of them. It's, it's a lot like literally wrestling a giant slimy wet musky. And they, you know, we usually are doing that when the water's cold and it's cold outside and they really have a lot of energy. And they're really hard to hang on to. Um, fisheries professionals have come up with a lot of different things to do it. We use what we call a musky sock, and it's basically exactly that. We put a musky in a, in a mesh sock, and it gives us the ability to hold each end of them a little bit easier. Within that sock, we can do everything we need to do. We can determine gender. We can measure the fish. We can tag the fish. Uh, we can look for tags. We can get aging structures. Um, so, so we've developed some pretty good ways to do it. And and it's, it's pretty universal throughout, you know, all the DNRs, Minnesota, Wisconsin, we all, we all net fish and we all um, kind of deal with them in similar fashion. That's super interesting. I've been a part of that just on the outside, you know, pulling up and talking to the DNR guys here in Minnesota anyway. And it's always intriguing to me to, to be able to watch that happen. But let me ask you this, Jordan. I mean, I know you're part of the Wisconsin side. What is the largest male and what is the largest female that you've been involved in? Well, I held two 50-pound females. Both were in, well, one was in Violet County. Uh, actually, both were in Violet County, and I had one 40-inch river fish. That was on the Wisconsin River. Or excuse me, did I say 40-inch or 40 pounds? I, I meant 40 pounds. Those were females. Those were, the, the 50s were just over 50 inches long. There aren't any males that really stick out in my mind. It, in Wisconsin, males generally don't get too much over maybe 42, 43 inches, and we're talking about a 30-year-old fish. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I just had to ask because, you know, you get to handle fish in a different environment that most anglers do, so I thought it would be kind of intriguing to see what that is all about. Yeah, I mean, the longest inland Wisconsin fish that I've held was a 52-and-a-half-incher that's that's the longest um 
we've, we've had multiple really heavy fish. Um, they're not necessarily super long. Yeah. The, the neat thing about Wisconsin fish though, is they hold their girth and they're way, you know, they're just deep and thick. Yeah. I mean, it, it tends, it can be that way. <laughs> we also have plenty of hoses too. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's unlike any other state, you know, I mean, <laughs> if you look at all the different species, uh, it's no different than humans, right? <laughs> yeah. That, that's a great a analogy. Different. I use that analogy all the time. I mean, muskies are just like people. And when we have a lot of fish pit tagged, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the last, on the last podcast, but it's worth mentioning again. I mean, these fish that we have pit tagged, they grow in such variable ways. Um, one male will grow really well in a particular lake and that same lake, a female grows super great or the next female doesn't grow very fast at all, um, between angling events. So it, they are, you know, that we have seven foot people, we have seven foot humans, we have, you know, four foot humans or humans that are even shorter than that. So they're all really, you know, there are many things that go into growth, water chemistry, climate, nutrition, geology, you know, all that stuff goes into it. Genetics go into it. Um, but a lot of times musky anglers are real quick to talk about genetics and that's like, that's the only factor that makes a big fish. And, and that's not necessarily always the case. It's the, it's the easy button, right? It's the one that we want to talk about and say, well, this is the thing we can control easily. So therefore we're going to do it. And there's some merit to that argument, but there's also a lot of merit to all the other factors that go into fish growth. Yeah, hands down. I mean, it only makes sense, right? How many how many trips do you make to the fridge? I mean, if people looked at me, they'd go, "Wow, he makes a lot of a lot of trips." So. <laughs> no, you're just got superior uh, condition, is what we call that, Brad. <laughs> All right, we'll call it that. But <laughs> no, you know, ultimately, I, I guess I got another question for you. I mean, if you were to look at angling fish, you know, it, it seems like if you have a super bait rich lake, those fish are lazier and they, they're like, I don't need your bait that you just threw at me. I have plenty to eat. Um, and then when you get to a lake that's kind of poor density of bait fish, it seems like they're a little bit more active. Uh, can you follow that in any studies that you have, Jordan? Well, I, I'm not sure that I could quote a scientific research paper that, that talks about that specifically, but, and this is scary because I'm going to use the word common sense, right? We know that that's not so common. But when you think about, you know, particular lakes, you know, we've all heard of this lake is hot this year. There's a lot of fish getting caught out of it. There's a lot of big fish. That could be a direct result of the fact that the forage in that lake is basically crashed or is less than it normally is, right? And then after a few years, maybe that lake cools off and you're not catching so many fish. Well, maybe that's not because, like, the fish aren't there. Maybe that's because there's so much food, just like you said, those fish are full. And why would they eat your cowgirl, even though it's, that's almost like kryptonite to muskies, you know, it, it's one of those situations that muskie anglers have a hard time figuring out. Like maybe a lake is tough because there's so much forage and these fish are full all the time, or maybe it's easier because they don't have as much to eat. That all plays into it. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And I, I think there's another combo here that, you know, I've discussed many times on the podcast over the last year or whatever, but, you know, I always say, does the fat man run to the fridge or does he, you know, walk? And so speed of retrieval, I think kind of plays a factor in that whole aspect too. When you have a bait rich lake, slower seems to be better than faster. And I, I'm not asking you to give the scientific side of that, but that's just my gut feeling. 
I don't have the scientific side of that, and I'll believe you. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> that makes complete sense to me, Brad. Uh, you know, it's a, it's about hanging that bait in, in that fish's face, just giving it that much more time. You know, that, that's my theory. Sure. And, and, you know, like muskies are, and this is one of the questions uh, from Facebook, Jeff put a post out there. One, one of the per- people, I don't remember who it was, I apologize, but they asked about, you know, what I think about vision and how they react. And muskies are a fight or flight beast. So they're either going to eat or they're going to leave. Those are the two things that they do when they're not spawning. So really they only do three things in their whole existence. Like their playbook is really basic. It's, they have three plays. They, they have the play that says, I need to make more muskies. They have the play that says, I need to get the heck out of here because I'm in danger. And they have the playbook that says, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat something. So that's really all they do their entire life. That makes sense. I mean, that, that, that is their, their home, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, your, your choices, you know, like you were saying, your trigger on those lakes with that are rich in forage is the trigger is put something in front of their face. They can't resist. And sometimes in other lakes, it's put something in front of their face moving so fast that they have to try to eat it. Right. Speed sometimes equates to the biggest fish. I mean, because the biggest fish is going to be the fastest fish, so on and so forth. And, you know, it's so interesting. After fishing muskies as long as I have, you kind of start putting some of those pieces of that puzzle together, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 great when you have the experience that you have to, to, to be able to draw on. That's awesome. So Jeff, I mean, where did you want to go with this whole thing? I mean, I, I feel like I have been able to ask Jordan every question that I've, I've had in the, in the back of my head for quite some time. I, I, I'm super excited about some of the things that we've discussed. Well, we had some more of those Facebook post questions, more guys that want to know more about stocking. But at, in the interest of getting way too long on this particular podcast, I don't know that I want to dive into all of them because some of them I think are going to require, you know, a long, a longer discussion, especially with the way you come up with questions. And tonight, you know, there's like <laughs> one, one, one after another. So it was a pretty easy night for me to do it. So I don't know if we want to maybe uh, attack one other topic and then potentially have Jordan back on talk about stocking because Jordan there's a ton of questions on stocking I think you saw them and and I think the questions that you saw they're not going to require like one word answers this is going to take a a bit of a discussion yeah I agree Jeff I think if if it's not you know if you guys aren't opposed to it I'm more than happy to come on whenever you want and and we could do dedicate one to to stocking because I agree I think a lot of those answers aren't super easy and there needs to be some context given in a lot of those you know um, cause there's a lot of information out there regarding stocking and genetics and a lot of misinformation that has no basis in science as well. So uh, I'd like to be able to cover that in detail and provide the back, the necessary background for some of those answers. I know one other question I could do real quick is, uh, somebody, somebody asked about, you know, movement from reservoir to river, um, talking about, do they prefer to one or the other? Um, I could hit that one real quick if you want. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. You know, that, that, that's a really, in my mind, that's a very easy kind of general rule. Now I, I'm not going to speak for every muskie in there in a reservoir with a large river coming into it, because as we said before, you know, muskies are individuals. There's always going to be some that are not doing what the rest of them are doing. 
but generally in a reservoir in the springtime, they, they go upstream muskies, at least in Wisconsin are typically river spawners. They love to spawn in rivers. They also follow the sucker migration up river and they spawn just before, just after the suckers, basically at the same time. And they eat those suckers all the way up. They do their spawn and they come back down following the suckers back down river to the lake. So in general, in the spring, they move up river. And then as you get to June, July, there, most of them have trickled back down. Some of them will remain in the river, depending on if there's enough food. Um, most of the fish still come back to the reservoir where they remain. And then I've actually seen in a lot of reservoirs late, late in the fall, like this time of year, they start to kind of move back towards those river mouths to overwinter and spend the rest of the winter before they make that push again in the spring. Well then Jordan, there was one other question too, that I think we can answer faster as well. And that was regarding stocking of this, this season. So as everybody, or a lot of people know, Wisconsin didn't get muskies stocked this year or any stocking from what I understand. I think there was some fall stockings done. I've seen some stuff from different clubs and whatever, but you want to talk a little bit about that. So they skipped it this year. Are we on pace for things next year? And then what are they, what are they doing to, or or are they doing anything about the missed year or is it just like up 2020 is out We're we're moving on to, to 2021. Okay. So you think that's going to be short? I'll do my best. Well, so, I figured it was going to be shorter than us talking <laughs> about genetics on stocking and, and uh, how that whole thing was going to go. So this was going to be quicker. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. So it's not entirely true that we didn't stock any muskies. We still stocked our Green Bay uh, fish. We stocked uh, about 400-ish fish in, in each of our three brood stock lakes for the Great Lakes stock. Um, we stocked 2,000 in the Fox River, 1,000 in Little Sturgeon, uh, 2000 in Menominee River, 500 at Peshtigo, 250 at Egg Harbor, 500 at Sturgeon Bay, uh, 450 at Alcanto. Uh, Butamore got 50, or excuse me, 500, and Poygan got almost 500. So that's on Lake Winnebago chain. Um, those were the Green Bay stock. Those are our Great Lakes fish. Um, they, they, we had those from our, our exchange with Michigan. They, we overwintered those fish in our, in our hatchery at Wild Rose. Um, you are correct. We did not stock any of the upper Wisconsin or upper chip fish this year. Um, due to COVID, we did, we weren't able to go out and get those eggs. We only have a certain amount of hatchery capacity, so we can't make up those fish. But what I anticipate biologists doing, and this is an individual biologist decision. It's not a statewide decision necessarily is they'll just move that stocking quota up ahead a year. Not all of our lakes get stocked every year. Typically, they get stocked every other year. So we miss the year on a lake. It'll just be stocked this next year. But we don't have the hatchery capacity in Wisconsin um, due to a walleye initiative that was put forward by a governor a few years ago um, that mandates we have to produce X amount of walleyes, which takes up a whole bunch of ponds that we would normally raise muskies in. We, We can only raise so many muskies. We have plans to be able to do that. And under our current situation we will be able to go out and get those eggs so we should have muskies this year um, our plan is to take musky eggs so that our our stocking will go forward uh, next year well then i got one other question that kind of maybe ties into this a little bit and i don't know if you even have the answer so this year in most minnesota and wisconsin license sales were up okay which in turn should generate more money for the dnr is that is that correct how do you know if that if the additional license money goes towards you guys or, or do you not know anything about that? I do know about that. Um, 
that's basically how I get my salary paid. So the good news is that's how I get paid. The bad news is I don't get paid more because we sold more licenses. So um, we did in Wisconsin, I want to say the last number I saw, uh, we sold about 400,000 more licenses than normal. That money does go to the fisheries program. That's how most of our fisheries work is done in Wisconsin. I'm not sure how Minnesota is organized. I don't know if they have what's called what we call general funds that that would be tax revenue. Um, so the, the common misconception is that, you know, people yell at me when they're mad at me and say, my tax dollars pay your salary. And I mean, that's not really true. Um, if they buy a fishing license, they pay my salary. Uh, and they do fishing license sales does pay for a lot. Although we do get some general tax revenue in Wisconsin to do a fisheries work. So the extra, uh, Fishing license sales will help our budgets in the future. We do, you know, we have been operating on smaller budgets the last 10 years. So we have been losing, basically losing revenue. So hopefully it'll get us back to a point where we can start doing some of the things we used to do. Oh, that sounds good. I was just, like I said, I was just curious if, you know, how that was going to play out because I assume that's how it was going to go. But I mean, I assume that obviously somebody's getting the money because we sold a bunch more licenses. I just wasn't sure how that gets divvied up. I wasn't sure if all that stays in your department or if, or if that goes to somewhere else. Yeah. Most of it, most of it comes to us. The other place that will get a, a windfall going forward. And this is hopefully this will be really good is the Pittman Robinson stuff. That's the tax that's put on uh, fishing equipment. And that's a, it's a federal program. So it's divvied out federally. So we don't know how much, if any extra we're going to get, but that pot of money should be larger as well because when you buy a fishing license that usually means you have to buy the equipment to go fishing which therefore increases that tax revenue so theoretically and i don't really care about this stuff too much so i don't pay too much attention to it but i know enough to be dangerous theoretically those coffers will be larger so therefore we'll be able to get more money from that and hopefully do more work maybe one other question i have and obviously you you probably don't know the answer because it's all hypothetical at this point but with talks inside the department, do you guys anticipate uh, another year, you know, where people are on the water like they were this year, or is it too early to tell? I mean, cause obviously 400,000 is a lot. So maybe next year, do you suppose you guys keep half? I mean, do you have any, is there any internal talks on where you think that, where you think, or how you think this is going to impact fishing moving forward? Um, well, I haven't been privy to any of those conversations. That's more of a social scientist kind of, kind of folks. I, I just, you know, I just kind of concentrate on muskies in the Mississippi river. So what I would guess though, is that, um, we will lose some depending on what happens with, you know, society. But, um, I do think that in general, you know, this change of, Hey, you know, this is a good, clean, very cheap way to entertain yourself you know, in the outdoors. And I think that, yeah, we may lose some of that additional license sales, but I think that we'll retain some just because it's, you know, it's the fishing's good. Fishing's good everywhere. Wisconsin, Minnesota, everywhere. It's, it's been good. Um, you can, you can keep and eat what you catch. People love that. Um, it's healthy for you. So there's so much, there's so much involved in this angling experience that, that really isn't really enjoyable for people. And we've been hearing that a lot from people who bought a license for the first time in 10 years, they say, wow, you know, I really missed this. I haven't done it because of this and this and this. And the interesting part, part about that is most of the time, it's not things like, 
you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't buy a license because fishing sucked. Mostly, most of the time it was, well, I didn't buy a license because my kid had soccer every night or, um, they were in a play or I changed jobs and I wasn't able to do it. So, you know, I think that we'll retain a fair amount of this after that long winded answer. I can't say anything concisely. <laughs> no, I mean, you, I mean, you get, you get the point across. That's good. I mean, most of what we're talking about doesn't really you know, revolve around one word answers. So that's, that's kind of why we're having this discussion. That's good. Maybe I, the next one I'll just answer with one word. <laughs> I, I really don't think that when we go back to those other questions that that's going to work out real well at all. And then Brad's going to have like 12 other questions that are going to go with well, your years. So that's how that's going to go. I already have one question. So I don't know if I, is, if this is the right time. I, I can't see you raising your hand over there. So no, your <laughs> questions don't count anymore. You're done. You had your chance. <laughs> one last one, Jeff. <laughs> Fine. Uh-huh. One last one. Let's go. So Jordan, you know, you talked about muskies in a reservoir following up the lake and they're following the suckers. So, you know, I've always heard this and I don't know how true this is. And I'm, I'm interested to see what you have to say about it, but muskies i've always heard will spawn downstream as well as upstream is that true i'm going to try to answer with very few words no um i don't understand your question okay so you know it seems like most fish like to to spawn upstream so in other words current coming into a body of water mm-hmm. um and my, my understanding is, is that muskies they don't care if it's upstream or downstream out of that system. They will spawn in either or. Is that, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I understand. Like, so if there's a dam, they would just go through the dam and then spawn down there? Yeah, Is that what you're saying? Not, necess- not necessarily a dam. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you have, you have waters that are coming into a body of water and you have waters that are going out of the water uh, or out of that body. So hmm, okay. in other words, they, they're going downstream to actually do the spawning and it, it, you know, a dam could be involved. Maybe it isn't involved. So that, that's my question. Is that, is that true that they'll go upstream or downstream to actually do the activity? I, I suppose so. I, I still am a little bit perplexed by your question. I apologize, Brad. I don't quite, I mean, they, they typically, in Wisconsin anyway, a lot of our fish are river spawners. So they're going to spawn in some sort of current, whether or not it's uh, upstream of a, of a lake that they're in or downstream of the lake, they're going to spawn. And, and furthermore, you know, like my graduate research, I had radios in fish and I had a whole bunch of fish uh, Floyd tagged as well. And what I found is those muskies are going right back to the exact same spot each year to spawn. Like they know where to go. It's kind of like a, a salmon or whatever. So if you have a portion of the muskie population that spawns, you know, downstream in a lake, which I, I'm having trouble, I guess, thinking about a situation where we'd have an open system that comes in with no dam. So well, I guess that's what makes makes me my, perplexed about your question. I my apologize. thoughts, my thoughts on that would be like um, someone like the Stevens Point flowage or something like that, Jordan, where they would have the opportunity to go up and down. Does that make sense or not? I mean, I guess my A plus B equals C brain doesn't understand that. They, they typically run upstream. So if, if I can maybe say it this way. So in the Stevens Point flowage, there's a dam by Highway 10 in Stevens Point. And upstream of that is Lake Bay, right? That's the next dam. Mm-hmm. So most of the muskies in that whole section of river are going to be up towards that Lake Bay dam in the springtime. 
most of those fish are going to go upstream to do that. Um, will some maybe go through the dam? We call that entrainment. They go through the dam and they get downstream and then they try to spawn. They sure might, but they don't have the option to go back upstream once they're through that dam. It's an impassable barrier. So once they go through the dam, they have no choice but to go to that dam again because they think, oh, crap, I need to get up there to debate, but I can't anymore because this stupid concrete structure is in my way. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I think the answer to your question is yes, Brad, but I, and I just have to apologize again. I don't understand it. No, and that's fine, Jordan. You know, the, the thing that I've always heard is that they'll do either or, where most other species of fish will always go upstream. I've just heard that some muskies will go downstream. They don't care as long as there's a current, which you kind of explained in that whole scenario as well. I'm I sure could be possible, Brad. Yeah, sure. I wasn't sure if, you know, we could talk my whole thing. My whole thoughts on it would be somewhere along the, you know, the Wisconsin river stuff with like Lake Dubay. Is there, is there a river section going out and a river section going up with the lake in the middle? I'm not exactly positive where there would be lake fish, but then they wouldn't necessarily go run all the way up to the river. They would more, you know, some would maybe drop down into the current that was at the bottom of Dubay. I don't know. Those are the things that I'm thinking of in relation to Brad's question. Yeah, I think in Wisconsin, though, all the all the examples I'm thinking of are, are dammed reservoirs, right? So the bottom, the downstream is a dam. So if they go through it, they're not getting back upstream. So will they still spawn? I'm sure they'll try. Sure. Because I know, obviously, like on the Winnebago system, I mean, those fish literally travel from Winnebago through all of that to get up into the Wolf River to spawn. They're definitely not, they're not, yeah. like, they're not going, I mean, they're literally traveling I mean, I don't know how many miles that is. Lots of miles to get up there. Yeah, like, isn't, um, okay, maybe this is what Brad's thinking of. So, like, like, isn't Winnebagoshish have, like, some sort of outflow that's basically just a river? There's no dam there, right? Yeah, I, on um, Winnebagosh, that's yeah. a good question. I, I can't answer that, Jordan, but. I think I know, drove by it. it. It just looks like a river flowing out, right? And right. I think in that example, you might be right, Brad. There, there are certain fish, if they were spawned downstream of that lake and there's no barrier where it restricts their movement, there's certainly fish that do that. I, I'm 100% sure that you're right in that case then. I was just having trouble, I guess, visualizing what you were asking me. So that was my brain not working. So I, you're, I think you're, you're right. No, you're exactly answering my question. And I mean, we have many, many examples. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's dams on some of our smaller lakes as well. But you know, when you have a, an outgoing river, I've always heard that muskies don't care, you know, and, and I've always heard that other species always want to go upstream to spawn. So that was my question. I, I really didn't uh, relate it to a certain body of water by any means, but, you know, throughout the state of Minnesota, yes, there's spillways, there's dams, but they're not necessarily the like dams that you're talking about throughout the Wisconsin river system. So I, I just, uh, you know, if you think about a, a specific body of water in this state, Minnesota, where it's an actual lake versus a reservoir per se, you know, will they go downstream as long as there's current? Are they happy? Yes. Well, so then we, we can the answer that day, question a lot faster. <laughs> there's yeah, my one word answer. One word answer. That's what you were looking for. Yes. <laughs> Bam. Uh-huh. Good stuff. All right. Well, 
Jordan, I, I'm sure Brad and I will have you back on. It seems like Brad had a, had a good time tonight. So I would, I would like to get back to those questions regarding the stocking. And I think those are important things that a lot of people want to know, but in an effort to keep this podcast at a reasonable length, I think that we should devote another episode to it at some point during this winter. It seems as though we will all have additional spare time this winter to to get together and and talk about this. So as long as you're willing to come back on, we'd certainly love to talk you know, about that and answer those questions for those people that had questions on it. Because obviously, absolutely, this, uh, I appreciate you guys. This took a this kind of took a little different a different uh, path than I guess that we initially talked about, which is fine. I mean that the podcast can do that and. That's what makes these fun. So anyways, Jordan, I just want to thank you for coming out tonight and talking with us. Like like I just said, I would love to have you back on and we'll answer those questions and, and talk about that stocking stuff because I think that seeing as though it's getting a little late tonight that we don't want to dive into those questions because I'm thinking we would probably be here till about midnight. Sounds good, sir. So yeah, It could be a two to three part here, Jeff. I mean, realistically, it it could be because I know what those questions are going to entail and it's not going to be very short answers. I don't think, I think there's going to be a lot of backstory referencing this and that and why the DNR does certain things in that. So, and and that's fine. I just want to get the right answers. I don't want to rush those questions and just say, Hey Jordan, let's throw them out, but don't answer them thoroughly right now. Just, you know, kind of just whip through it quick and in order to get through it and, you know, based on time. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't want to answer them like that. I, I want to make sure that, you know, I, I let all the anglers and all your listeners know that there's a lot of science on that subject and we follow the best available science. Right. And I, I also want to, because I don't know if you've seen some stuff, but I've seen some stuff recently and that shed some light on certain things and made it sound like Wisconsin maybe isn't this great place to musky fish. And quite honestly, I think it's as good as it's been in a lot of years and your data would probably even tell you right now that it has been that, but again, well, it's, it's not even my data. I'll actually use Muskie's Inc. data to prove that. So, and, and that would be, you know, great. Cause like I said, I, I was a little disappointed to see some of the stuff and I was like, you know, it's Wisconsin still, yeah, we don't have the opportunities that, you know, giant fish in every single one of our bodies of water, but I think it's unique in, the different things that it presents to anglers too. It presents a lot of opportunity to muskie anglers in the state of Wisconsin as well. So um, anyways, with that being said, Jordan, I want to thank you again for coming out. We'll certainly get together here in the next, um, you know, little while, hopefully maybe before, before we ring in the new year and uh, you know, talk about muskie stocking. So I, th- I want to thank Brad for, you know, having a conversation with you tonight. <laughs> I was, I just got to hang out and listen. So that made my job kind of easy, but thanks again, Jordan. We'll, uh, we'll definitely catch up with you soon enough. All right. I had a great time guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate everything.